Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. I just want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about taking off our masks today. Welcome to you online. Welcome to you at Homer Glen, at Orland Park, and uh, those of you who are at Lockport, and all over the world. I mean, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about what happens behind the mask. The Treasury Department has a conscience fund. Did you know that? Every once in a while, somebody's like, I screwed the government, and I need to make up for it, so they send the government money. So they've literally got a, a fund where people, guilt-ridden citizens, can, can contribute things to make up for other things that they've done wrong. Like, for example, this is, this is crazy, but one particularly sensitive contributor said, please accept the money enclosed for two postage stamps that I reused. <laughs> Did you even know that was wrong? I, I, don't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't even know. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's integrity or an overactive conscience, but way to go, lady. Another one wrote, here's a check for $1,300 to make restitution for tools and leave days and other things I stole when I was in the Navy 30 years ago. Can you just imagine what it's like to, to live with that much guilt? Another person sent in a check to the IRS for $100 with a note. It said, I have not been able to sleep, so here is $100 I owe you. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. What we're talking about during this series is what happens as we start to take the mask off. What's been going on over the last year as we start to take the mask off? And, and I talked last week about shame, and I promised this week we would talk about guilt and kind of the difference between the two of them. And I quoted, I, I quoted this from, from uh, Albert Ellis, who is a father of one of the sides of psychology, this really important rational and emotional therapy. But he said it this way. He said, there's no place for the concept of sin in psychotherapy. Okay? I, I, I want you to understand that. I think that's a bad idea. But the goal of psychotherapy is to eradicate the concept of sin because most emotional problems stem from toxic guilt. Okay, so he says sin is toxic guilt. I say that's the difference between shame and guilt, okay? Toxic guilt is bad. Shame, I think, toxic guilt is bad, obviously. Shame is bad, okay? And I quoted from Brene Brown last week. Um, you know, she said basically the difference is I did something bad is guilt. I am bad is shame. But let me read this again. I believe there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling of experiencing, of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging of something that we've experienced, done, or failed to do to make us unworthy of connection. Totally agree. And I really think that's what Ellis was trying to say. But we need healthy guilt. She says, again, I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. There are times, ladies and gentlemen, we need to feel psychological discomfort. Okay? I mean... To quote the famous philosopher Ringo Starr, somebody needs to help us say, no, 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 I can't take it no more. I'm tired of waking up on the floor. Come on, do it with me. No, thank you, please. It only makes me sneeze. Then it makes it hard to find the door. Okay, I know, I know you're kind of wondering, like, what, what's going on here lately? I'm just going to be honest with you. Sirius XM had a free week of of music, okay, and, and so I kind of binged on the 70s station, so that's why last week you got Lady Marmalade, and this week you got Ringo, okay, but don't worry, 
I'm too cheap to pay for it, so it's all over. I want to talk about guilt, okay? I want to talk about guilt and probably like one of the most guilty people ever in the Bible and the redemption of that story, all right? I'm in 2 Samuel. If we could only stop right here in chapter 8 where it says, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. If only we could stop in 2 Samuel 8. If this is a fairy tale, we just stop right there and say, and they all lived happily ever after, but it didn't happen. It could have, but it didn't. Please, as I tell you the story of David and Bathsheba, if you haven't heard it before, please understand that David started as a humble shepherd. He was obedient to God in obscurity. He was a courageous teenager who valiantly confronted the giant Goliath when nobody else would do it. He was a loyal servant to King Saul. He was patient even when he was pursued by Saul and Saul was trying to kill him, he refused to kill the king. I mean, even he, because he had so much respect for the Lord's anointed. Like David was a spiritual leader. When he became king, one of the things he did immediately was he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem so that worship could happen again. And he was a compassionate king who helped Israel reach great heights that they've never reached before. And he composed a bunch of the Psalms and, and a great leader. I mean, he's the 23rd Psalm writer in all of this stuff, right? But when we got to around age 50, he threw it all away. I just, I just hope that you don't ignore the good in David. I hope this Bathsheba incident isn't the only thing that you'll remember, like Dan Quayle not being able to spell potato or Steve Bartman trying to grab a foul ball. Okay, let's just, just remember something else. Here we go. <laughs> One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Okay, look, I'd like to talk about uh, modesty here and maybe say something about yoga pants. But no matter what it is, this is David's problem, okay? It, it wasn't really an isolated incident. I, I, it, it could have been a, a, whoops, I can't unsee that, I'm going back to bed, except he already had a problem. David had stopped listening to his healthy conscience a long time ago. Earlier, we find this verse. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines, girlfriends, whatever you want to call it, and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. You see, David already had a bunch of wives. It's very common among kings of foreign countries, but now he adds even more wives and more concubines. What I'm saying is Bathsheba was not his first problem. He had stopped listening to his conscience. He, he, he wasn't listening to the voice say, no, 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 I don't need another one anymore, okay? Because God had said in Deuteronomy 17, the king must not take many wives. David knew this verse, or his heart will be led astray. Somebody asked Mark Twain, where in the Bible it says that a man should not have more than one wife? And he said, well, Jesus said no man can serve two masters. <laughs> Maybe David needed a definition of many wives, right? But Bathsheba wasn't the problem. David didn't listen to the little man. You got to listen to the little man. The little man knows all. <laughs> My little man's an idiot. <laughs> 
David stopped listening to the little man. Back in the day, David listened to the little man, the little conscience inside of him. He, was, he had a chance to kill King Saul one day. Like literally, David is hiding in a cave because King Saul is trying to kill him. And, and King Saul chooses that cave to go in and relieve himself. And David's men are like, dude, God is delivering him to you. You know he is wrong and you are right. Sweep the leg. Kill him right now. And David said, I will not. The little man says, I will not kill the king's anointed. But at some point, David stopped listening to the little man and started listening to something else. I mean, again, kings would sometimes take wives for political reasons, but let's just be honest. From what we know in this story of naked Bathsheba on the roof, David had other issues, possibly sexual addictions that were the problem. For David, more wives meant more bow chicka wow wow. That's all there was to it. So let's face it, right? Because nobody gets more wives because they wanted more mother-in-laws. I don't care how politically connected they are. Can I get an amen from you? All right. And, and that's where David has a weakness. And people, that's why porn is so dangerous. Do you know that if I wake up at night and I want to walk out and find a naked woman on the internet, I literally can't get it on any of my devices without my brother-in-law being alerted? It's called covenant eyes. If you've got a problem, man, I'm like, if you don't have a problem, it makes me feel great. I'm not saying I have that happen very often. I'm just saying I can't do it, okay? It's great. It's a program called Covenant Eyes, and I don't have to worry anymore because I have control over it. I'm taking control ahead of time. I don't know why David's servants hadn't shut that window. But David sees Bathsheba on the roof bathing, and he turns to his assistant, and he says, um, that woman who lives next door. And the servant said, what, the naked one? Oh, is she naked? I, I didn't notice. Who is she? And the man said... The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the listen to this, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, <laughs> what is the servant saying? He, I mean, you got to understand that normally when you did a description of somebody, it was the, the daughter of or the granddaughter of, right? You don't normally list the spouse, and the servant, but the servant knew David. He knew how David was moving with the ladies. And hey, he saw her too. So what he's really saying is, she's married, you moron. You should know better. As a matter of fact, she's married to your friend Uriah. Literally, the servant was trying to be the little man. Bob Russell said, when we are on the edge of sin, so often God will send a last-minute warning. And David should have turned around and gone back into the house, back to one of the wives he already had for crying out loud. But he's on that slippery slope, and the consequences are deadly. David sent messengers to go get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. It's really hard to tell from the text how this all played out, but there is really no doubt that this is an abuse of power. Could she really even refuse him? The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, uh, I'm pregnant. So now comes the accountability because you didn't listen to the little man. You got to listen to the little man. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to get caught. The Bible says your sins will find you out. 
So David sent word to his commander to get Bathsheba's husband back home. Okay? He's like, oh, I have an idea. I'll get Uriah to come back home. Under the premise of getting a report, you know, send Uriah to bring a report from what's going on. He didn't really need Uriah. He was trying to start the process of covering up. That's what happens when we don't listen to our conscience. If he brings Uriah home and, and Uriah sleeps with his wife, then they'll think the baby is his, right? There's no DNA testing back then. Nobody's going to know. Might not look like daddy necessarily, but it's kind of hard to tell, right? The only problem is that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, has way more character than King David does at this moment. And he won't go home. He literally says to David, David says, why don't you go home and, you know, take a couple of days and then go back, you know? And he says, my Lord's men are camped out in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. What a contrast. I mean, I still believe David is a man after God's own heart, but right now he's a jerk. And is being shown up by Uriah. Uriah says, as surely as you live. Like, I'm, gonna, I, I'm so dedicated to you, David, that I'm not even going to sleep at home until the battle is over. In other words, David sleeps with another man's wife, even though he's got plenty of other wives, because he has no honor at this moment. And Uriah refuses to sleep with his own one wife because of his honor. So David tries one, I'm shortening the story, David tries one more time to get him drunk and he still won't do it because Uriah had more character when he was drunk than David did when he was sober. And this is how far David had drifted from God. This is what not listening to the good healthy guilt inside of you will leave you with. So in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab the commander and sent it with Uriah And in it he wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is the fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. His his lust turns into adultery, possibly rape, depending on how you look at it, into hypocrisy, into lying, into covering up, and now into committing murder. Just just, just try to picture the Honorable Uriah handing the sealed envelope to Joab, which basically says, kill me. How did David go from the guy who, 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 who slung a sling at a bear and a lion while he was a shepherd and killed them in faith for God? How did he go <coughs> from the guy who, who slung his sling and killed the giant Goliath when everybody else was afraid and nobody else would do it, and he had enough faith to go do that? How did David go from the guy who, when he becomes king, says, let's bring the ark back in because we need the scripture here and we need to do the things that are right? How did he go from that guy to this guy? Well, I'll tell you how. It didn't happen overnight. It started small and it snowballed because he didn't listen to the little man. So Joab followed orders. He put Uriah at the front, and then he pulled back, left him exposed. And not only was Uriah killed, but some of David's other men also. Because, guys, when you don't listen to your healthy conscience, it affects a lot of people. It's like throwing a rock in the pond. There's a ripple effect. You know what's really sad? I mean, Uriah, it's not just some guy in the army. 
He's one of David's top military men. Why else do you think he had a house next to the palace? Was that just a fortunate real estate transaction? Oh, look, honey, I looked it up on Zillow. This is right next to the palace. I think this one will be great. No. David knew who she was. He knew Uriah. He was one of his mighty men. That's what makes this even sadder. So it appears for a while that he gets away with it. The cover-up goes on. Troops didn't know. Nation didn't know. But God knew. Bathsheba moves into the palace. She becomes David's wife. David covered it up for a year. And then I want to talk for a moment about how God works through good guilt. Okay? And show you how... It all eventually got resolved, even though this is a terrible story, okay? Obviously, the first one is our conscience. The Bible says these requirements of the law are written on our hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing or defending them. That's what goes on inside of us. That's the little man. Like I said last week, some of you have an overactive conscience. Some of you have a long-term memory conscience, and you just can't let stuff go that God forgave a long time ago. Some of you have a family that put unhealthy, toxic guilt on you. And some of you have completely misguided guilt because of something you didn't even do, but somebody did to you. And that's what shame is all about. But we also have a legitimate little man that we need to pay attention to. So the Lord uses conscience, and He uses Scripture. Again, David went back and brought the Ark of the Covenant in. Every time somebody had the Scripture around, it helped them stay close to the things that God wanted. That's why it's there. In 2 Kings 22, people found the scrolls. They'd been buried in Jerusalem for a long time. And King Josiah found them and ordered them to be read. And it says when he read Scripture, the Bible says he tore his robe and lamented, saying, I can't believe we have not obeyed the Word of God. And then he went out immediately and tore down all the idols in the temples to the idols. He didn't know it was wrong until he started looking in here. And by facing Scripture, he felt guilty. And it motivated him to proper behavior. And I just got to tell you, as our society becomes increasingly ignorant about biblical standards, our consciences, because they become seared shut and people don't know right from wrong. And that's the purpose of Scripture. That's what it's supposed to be about. The, the Apostle Paul said, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. So it's our conscience, it's Scripture, and sometimes it's worship. I want to be really careful because I don't want to minimize our online audience. I love that you are with us wherever you are. Many times I'm with you watching online instead of being able to be with my church family. But I also really want to encourage you, if it's at all possible, to be with a church family in some way if you can. Even if you're with a group of people that you put together in your home and do a home church, I think that's a great solution wherever you are around the world. Being with other people in worship is important. The Bible says, where two or three come together in my name, I am with them. It doesn't mean God's not with us individually, but there's something about the body working together that helps us stay close to God. So many times during a service, people will tell me they're just flooded with tears and emotion. And sometimes they don't even know what it is. But sometimes it's gratefulness and grace and love and forgiveness. And other times it's the Holy Spirit going, hey, you're headed the wrong way. 
away from the Father instead of towards Him. When Simon Peter saw Jesus, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Sometimes being in the presence of God together helps us stay close to the things that are supposed to be valuable to us. Somehow David lost all of that. And sometimes guilt convicts us through good people. Back to the story. David goes on for the next year, right? A year later, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, hey, dude, I got a story to tell you. There, once upon a time, there was this guy, he had all, he was rich, he had all kinds of sheep, and there was this other guy that lived close to him who was poor and only had one sheep. And the rich guy was going to invite some of his friends over for a barbecue, and he wanted lamb chops. And, and instead of barbecuing one of his own lambs, one of his own sheep, he went and stole the one pet lamb from that other guy and barbecued it for his friends. And the Bible says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, you see, the, you see where this is going, right? David didn't. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, mm, you're the man. And Nathan went on to tell David that the consequences of sin would be great. And I hate this part of the story. The sword would never leave his house. Please don't miss this. I don't want to dwell on it because I think we've all experienced it enough in our lives. Just know that God forgives, but it doesn't mean the consequences go away. David's kingdom was never the same because he didn't listen. And they did not live happily ever after. And at the end of David's life, he was called a man after God's own heart. And he started the line of descendants that included Jesus himself. The house of David, the town of David, Bethlehem, right? And, and he was a great role model to us in a lot of great ways and some bad ones. And he will be in heaven with us when we get there and we can know him forever. And we can all talk about the stupid things that we've done, okay? And to his credit, and this is important if this is you today, when Nathan came to him and confronted him with sin, the first words out of David's mouth were, I have sinned. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I know you're like, um, I think he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, right? Too, also, yeah, I get that. But ultimately, our highest responsibility is before the Lord our God. Ultimately, that's what I'm talking about. And David knew that. Obviously, he sinned against Uriah. Obviously, he sinned against Bathsheba. Obviously, he sinned against the people that he was leading. But ultimately, number one, he sinned against God. Last week, I talked about repentance. I want to I bring it back again. The first word in repentance is conviction. I, I am wrong, and I feel guilty, and I've sinned against God and others. And, and the, thing I, I, the thing I need to po point out about conviction is it's about not blaming other people or other things anymore. 
All right, this is about conviction. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. I did a little background reading on the new Cruella movie. You know, there's a new Cruella movie coming out. And basically, uh, it's going to be a lot like Wicked, you know? It's going to be about how did Cruella turn into Cruella? And there seems to be like this whole genre about explaining how the villains become villains these days. So that's what the movie's going to be about. And that's a fine. I don't have a problem with that. But it doesn't excuse it, okay? Being a villain is being a villain. I, it doesn't matter how you got there. I'm sorry that you got there, but it doesn't excuse it. So at some point, there has to come a conviction that I'm not going to, you know, try to kill puppies anymore, okay? I'm, I'm not going to make a coat out of the puppies. I'm convicted. Sorry, if you haven't seen 101 Dalmatians, you'll figure it out. And second word, <laughs> contrition, okay? Contrition. I am sorry, this usually is accompanied by tears. This is where, okay, we're convicted, but then we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna really be sorry about it deep down in our soul. And the Bible says this, if we confess our sins, we're going to tell other people, we're going to tell God that we know it, okay? First is, we're convicted, but now we're going to admit it, okay? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's huge. That's such a beautiful verse. But there's a condition, right? It starts with a condition. There's an if. If. And, 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 and please, you, if you don't know me, please know legalism is the enemy. I, I, I hate legalism. I grew up thinking, and some of you did too, that I had to like, oh, well, I go to bed at night. I got to figure out which ones of the sins did I do today, you know, and the sins of uh, omission and, you know, whatever. I mean, you, a lot of you grew up the same way. Like, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I don't even know what I did, but I'm sure I did some stuff wrong. So this is how I want to walk around feeling. And that's not what we're talking about. But when you do know, and you are feeling that healthy guilt inside... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then the third part is change. Not perfect change, just turning around and going the other direction. I quit rebelling against God. I will turn and walk in his will. It's a change of mind. It's a change of character. I said this last week, what's in your jar? Okay. The woman last week poured out the, the jar, which was probably something that she used to be a prostitute. It was something that the jar of perfume. It was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And, and what's in your jar? What I'm saying is, as we're coming out of the pandemic, some of us have put some stuff in a jar. Some of us ha- have, have, have changed our behavior in bad ways. And all of us had behaviors beforehand that weren't so great. Can we just all admit that? Because I did. So some of us have gotten into situations over the pandemic where we've gotten worse about some things, and it's not going to get any better until you're convicted that they are bad, and you have contrition, and you admit it, and you confess it to God, and you decide to turn around and go the other way, and you pour out your jar. An auto mechanic received a repair for an order that said, check the clunking sound when going around corners for this car. So he took a test drive in the car, and he made a right turn, and at that moment, he heard a clunk. And then he turned a left turn, and at that moment, he heard a clunk. And and he went back to the shop, and he opened up the trunk, and he just soon discovered the problem. Promptly, he returned the repair order to the service manager with the notation, removed the bowling ball from the trunk. 
Some of you are driving around with the bowling ball of sin in your life, and it's not going to do you much good until you feel bad about it, until you get the ball out of the trunk. Yet now, the Bible says, yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Do you see that? Godly sorrow is about the things of God, and that's where healthy guilt comes in. Worldly sorrow is shame. That's toxic guilt. That brings death. So you've got to listen to the little man. And okay, so this is the big part for all of us today. As we lead into communion, Jesus told the woman last week, he said, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And I can't imagine, I mean, she was a sinful woman. That's all we knew about her. I can't imagine this week's story, anybody having sin any greater than David's. I mean, he didn't drive slowly in the left lane, but all the other big ones are in there. You know what I'm saying? All the mortal sins are in there. Lying, abuse, and adultery, and murder. But he is instantly forgiven. Here's what I want you to hear. Because I'm not going to leave you with this. He is instantly forgiven. The amount of time between David's confession, I have sinned, and Nathan's reply, the Lord has taken away your sin, is non-existent. Let me read it again. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. There is no time in between confession and forgiveness. It is immediate. As soon as he asks, forgiveness is granted. It's only that Nathan has to wait for David to be done with his sentence before he says, it's just like that, man. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Bible says that God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And it's the same for all of us. No, the consequences might not go away, but forgiveness is immediate. And side note, um, really cool part of this story, if someone helps you on your journey, keeps you on the right path, be grateful for them. You know that David and Bathsheba had more children, and in 1 Chronicles 3.5, one of their sons was named Nathan. As we prepare for communion, I'm going I'm to lead you at all of our campuses today, and you'll grab the cups, peel the cellophane off the top of it, and get the, get the uh, bread out, and then pull the rest of it off and get the juice out. And, and while you do that, I'm going to read, okay? Instead of just watching and listening, I'm going to read for a little while. Um, and I want to read for you. Remember that David wrote a lot of the Psalms. I want to read for you what David wrote immediately when he was confronted with the sins that he had committed. They were horrible sins. It's in Psalm 51. You get your cups ready and let me read this. This is at the beginning of the, of the book. It says, a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Sounds like he found his heart back again. And I'm praying this for you. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Okay? That, that, what that's saying is that three times, I want you to notice three times in Scripture, 
that first scripture, he mentions mercy. He, sa he says, your unfailing love, your great compassion, and your mercy. I love this. When David turns to God in the aftermath of his sin, the first thing he asserts is confidence in God's mercy and love. And that is what you can never, ever forget. If David could be forgiven for what he just did for crying out loud, I don't know what you could possibly have done that puts you in a situation that you don't think you can pour out in the confidence of God's mercy and love. Don't ever forget. He, wash, he, he goes on, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow hyssop was what they used in the sacrifice they would dip it in the blood of the animal sacrifice and they would sprinkle it on the person to cleanse them from sin I will be whiter than snow. Is it possible for David to be whiter than snow? Yeah, he says it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Yes, it's possible. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Yes, it's possible. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching and listen to what he said. This is telling the story again of David. God made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I wanted him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, just as he has promised. Then he goes on and preaches about Jesus and who he was and the resurrection part. And he goes on and he says, Now when David had served God's purpose for his own generation... He died, and he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. As we remember what God has done for us here, notice that Paul didn't spend even a moment talking about what David had done wrong. He said he was a man after God's own heart. And at the end of his life, he had served God's purpose. But his body decayed. And Jesus's didn't. And that's why the hope and the beauty of this act that we do here every week is so important. Because this represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And this represents the blood of Jesus that makes us whiter than snow. And it makes us clean. And because of this, we know that, yes, our bodies will decay, but we will live forever with a guy named David who committed adultery with his friend's wife and then killed him. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand grace. It's the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat.
the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Would you stand with me? I want to close this out in prayer. Father, I wanted to talk about the healthy side of guilt today because if one person was headed in the wrong direction today and they heard David's story and they realized how much he messed up his life and they changed, it's worth it. And all of us struggle with so many different things and we've struggled with things while we've been hidden away from everybody else and it's difficult as we come out to come to grips with who we are and where we're at. Some of us are better and some aren't. And one way or another, it's been a really easy year for us to find either shame or guilt as we come out and take our masks off. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to understand there is a healthy guilt that we need to listen to. But as soon as we say, I have sinned, you say, your sins are forgiven. Thank you for that promise. Thank you that you know that we're humans. Help us to live in the way that is healthy for us. Not because it's not going to make you mad, but because you know it's the best way for us to live. Be with us, Lord. It's in your name I pray. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May he make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift his countenance upon us and give us peace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forever. Amen. Have a great weekend, everybody.